Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 22. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. James 2, 8 and 9. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Acts 10, 34 and 35. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this week, Harvard University released their Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery report. And this report names the history of enslavement, white supremacy, and racial injustice at the school since its founding and describes how the university has benefited from and generated a lot of wealth, a significant portion of its wealth through the 70 individuals of African and indigenous descent that it enslaved through the 17th and 18th centuries. In addition, the report outlines how five of their top donors who made their wealth in, sla uh, in slavery uh, made up one third of all the donations to the university in the first half of the 19th century. Considering that their endowment fund is now worth $53 billion, think of how much that one-third has grown to their benefit. Now, in light of these findings, Harvard has committed $100 million to address the gaps resulting from this legacy of slavery that they've identified. Now, $100 million seems like a lot of money to us, but it's pretty small compared to $53 billion but it still signals a, uh, the steps that this prestigious school is taking to, and they're willing to take to acknowledge racism, to acknowledge how it has benefited from racism, and to take tangible steps in addressing the legacy of racism at the school. Now, it's a move that I hope gives us courage to recognize how racism has shaped our world and even our own lives. Now, the step that Harvard has taken is to be commended because it signals that racism is more than just mere personal prejudice between two individuals. Racism shows up in our institutions. And if we're honest with ourselves, the wealth and the opportunities that many of us have come to enjoy have often come at the cost to others, as the call to worship reminded us this city is built over black communities. But this move to acknowledge racism, is this more than just lip service or some woke liberal agenda? 
And as we begin this new sermon series on just relationships in a just world, we find that the Christian scriptures provide a much more substantial response and substantial rationale for addressing racism. It's not just informed by our political inclinations or whether you have been oppressed or whether what your experience has been. This response is rooted in God's vision for shalom, the flourishing for all that we learned in our opening message last week of the series. And over these next few weeks, we're going to look at this uniquely American product that has been exported around the world. This product is not the modern liberal democracy or mega corporations and unfettered capitalism or Hollywood and professional sports or the military industrial complex. They each have their own strengths, but also incredible drawbacks. But to consider what just and flourishing relationships look like or might look like in America, we cannot ignore how the idea of race and racism has been the water that America has been swimming in since its founding. And because of that, it invites or even demands a response. So today I'd like for us to recognize racism. Recognize racism as favoritism, as a consequential myth, and also as theft. As favoritism, as myth, and as theft. Now in the text that Roz read for us today, we hear this consistent movement from the Old Testament into the New of how God... God and God's character and action might address the issue of race and racism. Now, we don't necessarily see scripture name racism as a sin, but it does speak to it in terms of favoritism. In the early days of the church, Peter describes in Acts how he's convicted about his exclusion of non-Jews that have now followed Christ based on his understanding of how Jews had practiced their faith. He was a faithful Jew. And he was concerned that those who are coming to the faith and following Jesus, that they would need to follow the same practices that Jews have practiced all that time. But after he receives this vision from God for uh, in asking him to eat of animals that were once forbidden according to Jewish ceremonial law, and he gets a visit from this guy named Cornelius. He's a new Gentile convert to Christ. Peter realizes how favoritism was going on in his own life, in his prejudice against Gentiles. Now remember the early church was made up of Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. The early church was a Jewish faith. That's how they saw themselves as. They never imagined that tons of non-Jews would come flooding into their worshiping community. And if they did, non-Jews would be expected to take on practices of the Jewish faith, like Men would get circumcised and they would begin to follow the Jewish dietary laws and follow the Jewish calendar. But as the gospel spread from beyond the Jewish people, their understanding of belonging expanded. And it revealed a kind of cultural favoritism that wasn't compatible with the gospel. In James chapter 2, James speaks of another kind of favoritism. Though he's addressing favoritism when it comes to favoring the wealthy over the poor as they gather in the church, favoritism here isn't just personal or cultural preference for a class or a demographic, but it's in fact what he names as a sin that is incompatible with the calling of Jesus' followers. In fact, in giving of the law to the Hebrew people back in Deuteronomy, God reminds them how favoritism is antithetical to God's own 
character. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 says, The Lord, great God, mighty and awesome, shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. You see, it's in God's very own character to not show favoritism and partiality. God is concerned for the marginalized, named here as the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. We even sang about it today in, in today's songs. While those categories still exist for us today, God is saying in light of Israel's liberation from Egypt and in light of their promise of a land to call their own, that they who held cultural or economic power in their people group should not be excluding or taking advantage of uh, those who weren't considered part of their people. Favoritism at the exclusion of the marginalized, at the cost of the marginalized, goes against God's very own character. Now, some of you might be listening and thinking pretty astutely. It's like, well, didn't God show favoritism <laughs> because he chooses a particular group of people descended from one family? So, kind of contradictory of God, isn't it? So, yes and no. Yes, it may look like favoritism in God's election of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God did choose one people group over another to reveal God's character and plan for the world. But is, here's the question. Is the mere selection of one over another favoritism? Or is it an act of God's sovereign will as the supreme divine creator of the universe? What's the purpose of God's choosing? The purpose of God's election of one particular group is not to privilege them over and at the expense of other people's group, people groups. But we find that it is through this choosing of one people group that God wants to reveal God's blessing and flourishing shalom that would come to all of creation. So put it in a maybe more mundane way. If I, as a parent, ask my son Evan to go and grab dessert from the fridge to serve to the family, does that mean it's favoritism? Or is it me making a, a decision as a parent to serve the family? Now, I'm a fallible human and imperfect human being. I, as a parent, of course, can favor one child over another and tell myself and tell others that, well, I'm just serving and trying to be a good parent. But, you see, if God is really God, who's perfect in goodness, perfect in love, and justice, and mercy, and he's supreme over all universe, why would favoritism creep in? It goes against God's own character. So, having built on this foundation of this biblical prohibition against favoritism, let's turn our attention specifically to what racism and how, at its root, is a particularly insidious form of favoritism. The word race, to designate a person's classification, is so embedded in American culture that we often don't realize how novel it is. We often, me included, use it interchangeably with ethnicity to designate one's ethnic heritage. In fact, it happened last week when I called into a, a store to check on the status of something I left there for servicing, uh, the, the, the person who answered the phone said, uh, who are you speaking with? Was it a, a tall guy with glasses? And I, the only thing I could remember was he was a white guy compared to everyone else who was black. 
And I thought to myself, I'm about to preach on this. Is it okay to even <laughs> identify someone over the phone as white? Last week, and so, so uh, as all I could recite, yeah, that's so, I was just processing that. And churches will often, you know, use the term to communicate, or organizations will use the, uh, to, to use the term race to communicate their inclusion. We, we welcome people of all races, creeds, and colors. But you will hardly find a reference to the term race used as we understand it, found in Scripture. And this is where the NIV, that, the translation that we most often use, fails here in Romans chapter 9, verse 3. It's up on the screen, I think. This is Paul writing to the Romans, Romans and it happens in the NIV translation. He says, for I, wish I could, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Paul here is talking about his ethnic religious group, the Jews. In fact, the Greek word here translated as race in English is adelphos, which is more accurately translated as brethren or sisters and brothers. It's the word that shows up in the city of Philadelphia. Philo, which is love. Adelphos, Adelphia, which is brotherly love. In other words, the only usage of the word race in this way found in the Bible as we understand it today, comes from this modern understanding of ethnicity that is loaded with hierarchy. And this entire idea of race and the associated evil of racism is something developed in America. American sociologist and uh, civil rights activist W.E. Dubois, who also happens to be the first African-American to receive a doctorate from Harvard, says this, the discovery of personal whiteness among the world's peoples is a very modern thing, a 19th and 20th century matter indeed. What he's saying is whiteness is defined in opposition to blackness. The economic history and success of America depended on the creation of whiteness during the early colonial times. You see, back then, there were people of white, with light skin but they were not viewed as white people. How did this idea of whiteness come about? The economy of, the early, of early America was heavily labor-intensive, and to satisfy the needs for, need for labor in the colonies, landowners needed slaves. So they looked to the Irish and the Slavic peoples of Eastern Europe, and also to the indigenous peoples of America. But taking slaves from Eastern Europe involved all these costly wars, and Disease wiped out all the indigenous peoples here in America. So landowners began looking to Africa, where European colonists did not see a continent full of different people groups, each with their own languages and their religions and their cultures. Instead, they saw an entire continent of people with black pigmentation and as a source of slave labor and categorized them as spiritual heathens that needed to be saved. The colonial economy required slavery, and slavery required defining a certain group of human beings as inferior, dangerous, and even subhuman. And this all essentially eventually became associated with being black. Early colonists who owned slaves were not considered white, as much as they were considered as Portuguese or Spanish or British. And even as colonists divvied up North America, they were united around one notion, that European colonists were not black and they weren't, were not savages. 
referring to indigenous peoples of America. This definition of not blackness and not savageness combined with the economic interests of landowners is what informed this idea of race as a classification and value based on the color of one's skin. This not blackness eventually formed into whiteness. And here, white meant to be more than just having lighter skin. It meant being superior in intellect, in moral strength, and considered what is normative in American society. So in other words, the idea of whiteness is a form of favoritism of the most evil kind. It's a favoritism that isn't even dependent on distinguishing people based on uh, their ethnic backgrounds. Whiteness is a creation of those with economic and cultural power to keep fellow human beings subjugated for their own gain. White supremacy is original to America and it's pervasive in all of its institutions from the founding to our present day. The idea of race and the resultant racialized hierarchy that placed whiteness at the top is all based on a myth. It's a myth that has real consequences though. It's been created to favor one particular people group. So, so racism isn't just personal prejudice of one person against another. But what Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson describe in their book, Reparations, you can pick it up uh, um, as, as, the as the following. You know, as an aside here, let me just get, plug this. Our 3D, which begins today after the service, is going to be taking a look, working through this book called Reparations. And in fact, we have a very special guest, uh, Gregory Thompson, who's also a pastor here in the city. He's going to be joining in on the call. So if you're able to, please do join in or join us in the, in, in the basement for 3D today. You know, say they describe that how racism is more than mere personal prejudice between two individuals. Personal prejudice is hatred or discrimination of a person based uh, because they're a different ethnicity. But racial, uh, but there's also other things like racial, relational, racialized relational division. And that's division between groups of people with different skin tones. And they also speak about racism as institutional injustice. And that's reflected in, even within our criminal justice system where the percentage of non-whites who are incarcerated has exploded. When? Since the civil rights movement. Ida B. Wells, who is uh, a 19th century journalist and suffragist and anti-lynching activist, names this cultural disorder in America and how white America came by means of what she calls fraud, violence, intimidation, and murder. This cultural disorder is embedded in America. And it's also named by people like Frederick Douglass, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr. Racism is built on the myth of race, but it's a myth with real consequences. And this leads us to the one significant sin linked with racism in America which is the sin of theft. You know, in coming weeks, we're going to be exploring how the Bible addresses reparations. 
which means repairing or making amends for a wrong. And at the heart of an argument for reparations is white supremacy that was and is uh, dependent on cultural theft and material theft. Whiteness and white supremacy is this insidious form of favoritism that creates this myth to keep people with less melanin in their skin at the top of the hierarchy. Quan and Thompson write poignantly in their book, saying this, America stole black bodies from their homes, stole labor from those bodies, stole fruit of that labor, stole wealth from that fruit, and in the end, stole the very memory of those it victimized. Racism in America depends on theft, theft of power, of truth, and of wealth. You may have seen this map, I've shown it before, of Africa overlaid with the other countries of the world. Africa is massive, but it's often not reflected because of our, uh, the maps that we often look at. The map conveys the sheer size of Africa, but we often don't recognize the sheer diversity of Africa. There are several thousand distinct ethnic groups in Africa. And there's somewhere between 900 and 1,500 different languages on the continent. But since the days of European colonialism in Africa, there has been a theft of identity of Africa, of people who live in Africa, by grouping this multiplicity of people groups under the artificial category of race. Rather than viewing different people groups with their unique languages and cultures and heritages, they have all been lumped under the guise of race, blackness, and whiteness. And along with the erase, this erasure of identity is a theft of history. America has this romanticized, has romanticized the Civil War as this honorable war. About eight years, almost a decade ago, I traveled through Gettysburg for the very first time on a family vacation. We weren't planning, we just kind of were passing through. And as I was passing, we were passing through, it was full of people dressed in like garb. And they were reenacting the Civil War. It was really interesting, but I found it really puzzling. And looking back now with what I know about America's history, you know, America's common memory requires both the North and the South to understand the war to be honorably American, but not really about slavery. But in reality, the South was fighting to preserve the ways of antebellum South and to fight the Reconstruction. There's been a theft of truth, but there's also been a theft of power. White supremacy depended on power over black bodies, and that has shown up in political power by reserving the right to vote to white men. And the infamous three-fifths compromise in the Constitution was passed so that the South could benefit from counting the slave population as three-fifths of a vote in the representation for the House and for the Electoral College, but would not give African Americans full rights to vote as citizens. But it wasn't just a South thing. The reason that compromise came about was because the North, the North wanted the South, wanted to tax the South, and the more people in the South that they could tax meant more taxation funds coming in. So in both instances, black bodies were counted as less than full voting citizens and they were manipulated to maintain power of white people in America. 
That theft of power continues today in voter in disenfranchisement. Now, lastly, there has been a theft of wealth from African Americans. There's a theft of wealth by extraction. Black bodies or enslaved humans themselves were, were the wealth to be extracted from creation for the benefit of slave owners. There's theft by obstruction. Though on paper, the Homestead Act of 1862 permitted women and African Americans to take ownership of public lands that the government was distributing, there's bureaucracy and systemic barriers that prevented many African Americans from receiving land to call their own. And throughout America's history, there were numerous laws preventing African American home ownership of land, which has been and still is the largest source of inherited wealth in America. At the end of the Civil War, Congress created the Freedmen's Savings Bank in 1865 to enable African-Americans to save their money safely for the very first time. But an all-white board of trustees was appointed by Congress to oversee this savings bank. But they turned it to an investment bank and played the stock market with all of this money that was invested or saved, actually. It wasn't even invested. It was saved. Eight years later, the stock market crashed in the whole world, and along with that, ha over half of America's wealth disappeared instantly. And one year later, in 1874, Congress closed that bank and left bank uh, hold account holders with nothing. Now compare what Congress did there to what Congress did at the end of the Civil War in approving funds as reparations for slave owners who lost their property. The theft of wealth has continued well into the 20th century with the disparity of black colleges, with, its, with the process of redlining, which is the practice of disadvantaging prospective homeowners through higher mortgage rates or just not approving their mortgages simply because of the color of their skin. Racism in America has been a continuous story of favoritism. And racism in America is unlike racism between people of differing ethnicities and cultures. I'm Chinese and there's tons of racism in Chi Asian culture as well. But racism in America is very unique because it is favoritism of one group of people whose identity is dependent on creating an entire set of categories that isn't based on any objective reality of merit, of ethnicity, or of biology. This favoritism is merely, based merely on the amount of melanin that a person has in their skin. It is favoritism that has created a hierarchy that keeps whiteness at the top by stealing from others, namely African-Americans and indigenous people groups here in America. So I know it's pretty heavy. What do we do with this? What does God do in response to this evil, among many other things? Well, we find God sends Jesus. God, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the Alpha. He's the top dog in all of the universe. He's the one who sits at the top of the hierarchy in creation, together with God the Father and God the Spirit. And yet Jesus shows no favoritism. Instead, Jesus lays down his life, lays down his privilege, lays down his power so that sinful, broken human beings might be restored in relationship with the living God. 
Now, in light of broken relationship in this world, Jesus, Jesus doesn't refuse to act. He engages. He repairs what is wrong at great cost to his own comfort and at great cost even to his own life. Jamar Tisby writes in The Color of Compromise, saying, The refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression. Followers of Jesus are called to walk in Jesus' footsteps, laying down our privilege for the sake of others. And in America, I believe God is calling his people to recognize racism. Not just to recognize that it exists, but to lament not only its prevalence, but also how we have benefited from it. Our comfort, our privilege has come because of this insidious favoritism that is built on a myth and that is built on theft. As we confront this truth, we don't have to remain in depression or anger, frustration, or hopelessness, because those are all real things. But just as Jesus stepped into the mess of our world to repair it, so too can we step in to the mess of our world and repair it. With the help of God and to the glory of God. And may we do so full of courage, full of hope, and full of love. Let's do it together. Amen.